Welcome to the Lentil Intervention Podcast, talking all things movement, whole food nutrition and environmental wellness with your hosts, Ben and Emma. Hello, everybody. My name is Ben Adelberg. And I'm Emma Strush. And welcome to episode 20 for the year. Please remember to subscribe to this podcast and buy us a coffee if you do find this content useful. Following on from the last episode with Dr. Wayne Herlow, we now bring you the third and final recording from the Evidence-Based Eating New Zealand series of health-focused public lectures highlighting the power of plant-based whole foods to restore health to all New Zealanders. So the Christchurch theme was our GP frontline, and our next speaker, Emma, is? Dr. Rob Wilkes. So he's a GP currently based in Multueka. In this lecture, Rob discusses his experience being a plant-based GP in a pro-meat world, and he addresses some of the common issues he comes across in general practice. Rob also touches on how he treats gut health and common ailments with diet. So as Ben said, this wraps up the Christchurch recordings, but do check out the EBE website for details of their upcoming events in Dunedin, Auckland and Wellington. Enjoy. It's great to see so many people here and um, and initially I thought when I heard the numbers it's just going to be friends and family, but I think that now with this huge amount of people it reflects the growing interest in evidence and diet and its health um, benefits. So thanks all for coming and um, hope you can learn a bit more and be inspired. Um, and have some more resources uh, to look into. So I'm a doctor who um, follows mainly a plant-based whole food diet and interested in nutrition my, for myself, my family and my patients. And I just got a disclaimer, I'm not an expert, so um, I'll provide some resources for you if you want to go deeper. Um, so I want this talk to be, I want this to be more of a talk than a lecture. Um, so forgive me if it's a bit informal. And I hope this doesn't distract from either the science or the seriousness of the topic. Now, I started this plant-based journey um, uh, many years ago when my daughters became vegan. And I shout out to all your dads who got vegan daughters, <laughs> standing at the barbecue, turning those sausages over, and the daughters giving you the evil eye. You know, like, it's real awkward, but anyway. Um, so we stopped buying meat, and um, we started seeing... Um, animals not as food but as sentient beings with feelings and then it then we carried on and there was the environmental and welfare concerns of animal farming which also was a plus to eat less, less meat and finally there's um, all this information on the health benefits and the science and the question is really why didn't I know about all this and um, after many hours of reading listening to podcasts um, and bringing diet into my consultation with my patients, here we are. So this is about my struggles with discussing food with my patients. Um, and what I think we can do better to deliver the message and educate our patients on what I think is the most important discussion we need to have with them, especially those affected with chronic illnesses. The last part of my talk will be about um, what was a breakthrough in my understanding um, about diet and health and it's really the why and it's why changing your diet to be more plant-based results in significant memorable uh, measurable improvements in most of our chronic diseases and it's even reverses atherosclerosis um, for those with significant coronary artery disease so one of my patients i call him john um, came in for his medications um, following a recent admission to hospital 
He had a heart attack and they found that he had um, two critical occlusions of his arteries around his heart. So they put some stents in, in his heart and um, he was discharged on some medication. And he's on some medication, one for, for his cholesterol, one for his blood pressure, um, and probably one to thin his blood. So by the time we'd gone over a few things in the consultation, I thought I'd use all my newfound knowledge to ask him about a diet, his diet, since he's had his heart attack, been in the hospital. I said, what do you normally eat? And he said to me with a straight face, bacon and eggs, sometimes sausages for breakfast. And then he'd had leftover tea as a meat, usually a stew for lunch. And that night he had had some meat and veggies. And he said he's lost some weight and he feels good now. And he actually said this with some pride. I was actually really dumbfounded. I asked him if he recalled anyone discussing his diet with him in the hospital. And he couldn't. So we're running out of time, so I left him with his, with his prescription, and I hope at least when he saw the cardiac nurse for follow-up, she'd discuss lifestyle issues with him. So here I was as a GP, I was totally frustrated that I was unprepared, under-resourced, and didn't have the time to discuss his lifestyle with him. And that's something I was really keen to do. So let's stop there. I don't know what you think but this is this is honestly the norm in general practice and does it bother you well it sure bothers me and it bothers me a lot and why on earth when there's so much evidence out there that we're not having these conversations with our doctors i know if i was a patient and i knew what i knew now i'd be pissed off it should be an option let's break it down and look at the things that we can learn to do I'll, look at, the, I'll look, at the, look at the reasons why this happens and what we can do. The first thing is every single patient thinks they have a healthy diet. It's not funny. It's, even those with, who've had chronic health problems and obviously don't look like they're following a good diet. And it's what we've been brought up on. But it's now the low-fat option, meat and dairy and veggies. And it's recommended by the New Zealand Heart Foundation. And I'll read out some... I'll just read out the local Heart Foundation recommendation. So there's people who have had heart attacks will read. There's plenty of ways to eat for, for a healthy heart and a range of diets can be heart healthy. Those with small amounts of meat, poultry, fish, seafood, eggs and dairy and those without. And then it goes on to say, if you're thinking about switching to a vegetarian or vegan diet, then talk to your GP and practice nurse and get help from a dietitian or registered nurse. It sounds like it's something like pretty weird. <laughs> so putting aside butter versus margarine debate, because obviously they'd lose on that, we need to remember that it's our whole dietary pattern that counts. The total available evidence tells us that a heart healthy diet patterns based largely on minimally processed foods, well, we agree with that, and includes plenty of vegetables and fruit some whole grains in place of refined grains, legumes, nuts, seeds, and other sources of healthy fats, such as oily fish or olive oil, and may contain non-processed lean meats, poultry, and all dairy. So that's the Heart Foundation thing. Anyway, um, so if patients think they eat a healthy diet, why would they want to talk about it? Why would they expect us even to mention it? And of course they get annoyed if we even challenge them on it. And the next, next one is the evidence is very conflicting. 
Yeah, there's some confusing advice over the internet supporting various diet, diets and debunking others. Even health professionals hold opposing views. And you get health professionals saying that keto is the best diet to go on for someone. And then some, another one will say plant-based diet. So it reminds me how the smoking lobby famously used its influence to shape public opinion in the 1970s. And they hired a public relations firm to cast doubt on the scientific evidence which was showing a clear link between smoking and lung cancer. So I think that's, at, at the moment, there's a lot of doubt being cast on the clear evidence about the effect of plant-based diet on health. So how can we have any credibility if we don't even know what we're talking about and support opposing views? Most doctors have very little nutrition knowledge and our doctors and nurses only get a few hours of training in their education. And our advice is often generic, get some exercise and go on a diet. It's not consistent from one provider to the next, so one might suggest one kind of diet or exercise in another, and we don't follow these patients up. As, as um, we've heard before, we only have 15 minutes of the patient and we may try to manage several issues. And GPs don't have any time left at the end of their consultation to discuss lifestyle. Very few practices have other health professionals there in the building, but we're still practicing a very GP-centric model of care. But more specifically, we don't have dietitians and no lifestyle coaches in our practices. Since the modern era of medicine, we've made spectacular gains in treatment of many conditions that were previously life-threatening through medicine and operations. Patients came to us only when they were sick and they expected us to diagnose what was wrong and fix them. They were passive recipients of their healthcare, not active participants in their recovery. What can you give me for that, doc? I've got high cholesterol, or oh, here's the statin. Diabetes, take this metformin. What about my blood pressure? Yep, I've got that covered. Not that these medicines don't have a place, but they're usually the first things on a doctor's mind. The reason why they, the patient became sick and empowering that patient to change is usually not on our agenda. We've become very efficient and excellent at chronic health care and not so good at prevention. The next thing is like we, we say to a patient, you need to lose weight. Eat less fat, eat less carbs, fruit and, veg fruit and potatoes are bad for you. Try the keto diet, exercise more. Diet and exercise is recommended in most guidelines, but we fail to deliver them in a way that will impact our patient's health in the long term. We know where 90% of diets fail. We know that exercise for most people in the long run does not result in weight loss, and yet we still give the same information. Um, I was reading a book, um, Barack Obama's book, I don't know if anyone read, has read this, and there's this quote where um, one of his aides came to him once when he was trying to get climate change registration through um, the house, and one of his aides said to him, no one's interested in putting a solar panel on the roof when their house is about to be sold by the bank. And I think this is a really good example of why um, health is not a number one concern for everybody. Whether it's financial stress, family problems, issues at work, 
health is actually a low priority for some people. So what can we do if we want to change how we deliver this important part of the healthcare? So I'm just going to go through um, a couple of the things which sort of a counterpoint to this and will help this. The first one is getting well informed and um, I think it's about looking at the scientifics and the guidelines where there's a lot of consensus. I think so by increasing your knowledge um, and we've got a resource handout here we've put it um, together with some of the resources that I've used and other people have used to get a lot of knowledge um, about plant-based diet. Um, we must be aware of the influences on the industry on public opinion and um, last week in the GP magazine there's a whole thing about cholesterol and eggs and saying eggs were a normal part of a healthy diet and this was in a GP magazine and it had a little thing sponsored by the egg lobby on the bottom. <laughs> so you just got to be really <laughs> aware of um, where it comes from. There needs to be more funding to preventative health care. We need to have access to dietitians, lifestyle coaches. We need to have flexible consultation times with our patients. Because as we know, what a doctor says sometimes matters. There needs to be incentives to live a healthier lifestyle. And tax does work. To, tax has been shown to reduce smoking rates. And I remember when I was working on the East Coast, over one week, suddenly we got all these patients wanting to come in and get smoke things to help them. And it was the week that they first put the bit of tax up on the tobacco. So that was the, out of all the types of things we've tried, suddenly the um, increasing tax on tobacco was the, was the most significant driver. So I think there should be a sugar tax and no GST on fresh fruit and vegetables. We need to incorporate lifestyle medicine into our practice. Um, and this also covers um, stuff that's been taught before. Um, this is from the American College of Lifestyle Medicine. And you can see in the green area on the top left, that's healthy eating. Um, the next one's physical activity. Um, and then managing stress, healthy relationships, sleep, avoiding ris risky substances. Um, and another one which the blue zones, which we alluded to earlier, um, has, uh, was belonging um, to a faith-based community. So all these things are proven, um, scientifically proven to have better quality of life and pro prolonged life. So um, well this, that's just the next page. So we need to change our focus from managing chronic health conditions into preventative health care. Right. Um, the ne next one is um, understanding behavioural theory. And I think the problem is that um, we, we've been shaming people and giving them unrealistic goals. And we've got to be mindful where people are on the cycle of change. Um, it's like, for example, you say eat meat, have a meat-free day once a week. And we should encourage um, people along the journey. And we've got to understand why it's hard to change ideas. Um, and it's important we understand these concepts if we want to understand why it's hard for ourselves and our patients to change the way we think. We all come with these biases and we don't know we even have them. For example, we might have strong view on Mediterranean diet or that eggs are a part of a healthy diet. 
And um, this next bit, I want to thank Brian McLaren. I don't know if anyone's heard of him. Um, he wrote stuff about um, cognitive bias, and it's, I think it's really interesting. And I've got to think, I just bring this up because I think patients that we see or other people we meet who we want to maybe influence about plant-based diet, we all ha in our own precept, our own um, selves, we all have these biases. So we all have filters such as, what do I already believe? Does this new idea or piece of information confirm what I already think? Does it fit in the frame I've already constructed? If so, I can accept it. If not, in all likelihood, I'm simply going to reject it as it's unreasonable and unbelievable, even though doing so, well, is unreasonable. I do this not to be ignorant, but to be efficient. My brain, without my conscious awareness and certainly without my permission, makes incredibly quick decisions. It evaluates incoming information or ideas, ideas that fit in and are easy and convenient to accept, and they give me pleasure because they confirm what I already think. But ideas that don't fit well will require me to think and think twice and maybe even think, rethink some of my long-hold assumptions. That kind of thinking is hard work. It requires a lot of time and energy. My brain has a lot going on, so it interprets hard work like this as pain. Wanting to save me from that extra reframing work, my brain presses a reject or delete button when a new idea presents itself. I'll stick with my current frame, thank you very much, it says, and gives me a little jolt of pleasure to reward me for my efficiency. So I thought that's quite, that's quite cool. So um, the, just this is the final part of this talk. The, um, so there's the confirmation bias where our brain welcomes information that confirms what it already thinks and resists information that contradicts what it thinks. And you probably were going through some of this tonight with the various things. Um, complexity bias. The human brain prefers a simple lie to a complex truth. Clan bias, we flock to those who see as we do. Competency bias, we are unable to know how competent or incompetent we are. We think we know more than we really do. So that's, um, that's the end of that part. And I just hope that you can see the, um, where GPs are coming, um, how frustrated we are, and um, maybe some ways that we could move forward. Um, so I'm just going to, last bit is, if we've got time, is about um, a thing that really um, was a breakthrough for me for understanding the link between the science and um, how the health. And um, it was a link I'd been missing. And um, I knew broccoli protects us from cancer, but I didn't know how, how it worked. So I used to think that bacteria were there because they are along for the ride and our bowel was just a passive sponge to absorb the nutrients. Um, and that um, I realised how wrong I was. We, know, we now know that bacteria play an integral part of our body. As it happens, they're not just along for the ride. Now, just to step back from this, our body system is in a constant flux between assaults on it and healing. Um, the assaults on it may be bacteria, um, viruses, foreign bodies that enter our body through our mouths, nose or skin. And then we've got the whole system in our body which is constantly trying to 
repair the damage and the fight and get rid of these foreign things. Same with our cells, the cells are breaking down, the, the cancer cells are happening all the time, the body identifies them, mops them up and cleans them up. So you realise that your body is actually in a constant state of flux. We'll just get back to the slide. Now um, our gut is, all, um, is 10 metres long and the size of two tennis courts, so it's huge and it's got um, over 70 trillion bacteria in it. It's got 10 times more cells than it has in our own body. Um, I even heard one guy say that 60% of our poop is bacteria. It's quite creepy, but anyway. <laughs> right, so um, have it, has it, how many people know about the gut biota and that? Is, do many people know? That's oh, good. So maybe there's some experts in the room too. But this may sort of reinforce the thing. So there's our column. We've got the good bacteria there and the bad bacteria. The good bacteria um, produce all these things called anti antioxidants, a really amazing compounds called short-chain fatty acids, anti-inflammatory and anti-inflammatory compounds. Um, and on the other side, these bad bacteria cause um, produce endotoxins, a thing called trimethylamine, inflammatory co compounds, sulfides, and secondary bile salts. So, so you've got these bacteria in your gut, they're producing, they're either producing good stuff or, or the bad stuff. So if you look at the next thing, they, on the right, the short-chain fatty acids, now they do all things, they repair, they repair this leaky gut, which the bad guys cause, they're anti-cancer, they regulate your immune system, inhibit growth of bad bacteria in the gut, reduce blood pressure, and then they all have all these diseases they modify, they reverse atherosclerosis, reduce oxidative stress, which is harmful on our cells, reduce bacterial endotoxins, they protect us against cancer, they're anti-diabetic, anti-aging, and protect against Alzheimer's. So just about everything you'd get from a health food shop, really. And the, the ones on the other side, they are the, like, the really bad guys. Um, the, the products cause an overactive immune system, with them cause inflammatory bowel disease, arthritis, and arterial disease. And um, one thing I heard is also causes psoriasis. And TMAO, which is a byproduct of that early compound I couldn't pronounce before, it causes artery disease, diabetes, kidney disease, heart failure, atrial fibrillation, um, hypertension. These compounds they produce are carcinogenic, really strong studies for breast and bowel cancer um, and weight gain. So I'll just go back and show you. So those are the compounds. Um, unfortunately, I couldn't fit it all in one slide. And those are all the things they produce. Um, this is where it all happens now. All these bacteria, they require specific foods. There's foods that either promote them or they die off if they don't get the food. So on the left, the bad bacteria in our gut, are, um, it's been proven they do studies on people, they've had them on diets, all meat and dairy for a week, and then, then they swap them over to plant-based, and then they go back, and the whole, gut bio, the whole gut biome, all the bacteria changes within a day, and after a week it's completely different. So it's very fluid. Um, so these, these things on the left, the they cause the um, bad bacteria. And the ones on the right, um, fruit, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes, they 
have in them a wide variety of soluble fibre. And, and there's two types of fibres, insoluble and soluble. The insoluble ones are the one that goes right through our bowel and um, is often used for constipation. The soluble fibre is the main preferential food for good bacteria. And um, so uh, the, basically it comes down to the more you switch towards the right of, uh, towards the good bacteria, the better outcomes your health will be. Um, and they found that the wide variety of soluble fiber in the Western world, we only eat about 15 grams. The ideal is around about um, 300. Um, and the um, soluble fiber is the bacteria we need approximately to eat ideal I've looked at it as 30 different plants a week to feed these good bacteria because there's the bacteria have specific foods that they feed on so one may feed on beans and if you don't have beans in your diet then these good bacteria will die off and the the products they produce will not be not be there in your body um, so that's that's how that um, system works so far the studies show that we can change our diet at least, if we can change our diet to at least 80% plant-based whole foods, we'll significantly reduce our risk of disease. Seven out of the 10 top chronic diseases in, in the Western world are, um, are treatable and reversible. Um, so if, if you already have any um, conditions that are modifiable, then you'll probably want to be more more um, pure in your dietary restrictions. So the Mediterranean diet is not a complete whole food diet, but for most people it's, it's a really good diet. But if you've got more chronic diseases, you probably want to start looking at maybe reducing your dairy, having no meat, cutting out your oils. So um, I just want to say finally, so let's be kind not only to each other, but to our, those gut microbes that are there fighting for us. A good idea? Yeah. The end. Thank you for listening to the Lentil Intervention Podcast. If you found this interesting, make sure you subscribe and share it with your friends. 